Hey everyone, welcome back to Gen Z's Digital Decalogue. I'm your host, Shivani Maragapuran, and joining me today is Kevin Sun. A little bit about our guest of honor today. Kevin is a junior at the University of Southern California, majoring in computer science. He's also a member of the USC debate team and is, a, is passionate about social issues in STEM education. Recently, Kevin gave a talk called Less Lectures, More Stories at Shift SC's Tech for Good Student Symposium. And here's a quote that really resonated with me. It's, let's narrate techno technological process as the product of humanity. Let's situate technological narratives in the systems that haven't been built yet. And ultimately, and most importantly, let's all leave the, that freshman lecture hall and tell each other the story of how we did it. And I, I really love this quote. And if you haven't watched this video, I'll put it in the description of this episode. And I totally spoiled a lot of it, but this really resonated with me. I think it really represents the humanizing of innovation rather than focusing on the end result. So thank you, Kevin, for being here. It's wonderful to chat with you. How are you doing today? Um, well, thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm, do I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Excited to be on the podcast, excited to talk, and uh, yeah, excited to discuss some of these issues that um, you know a lot of young adults in STEM are pretty passionate about. That's great. Awesome. And before we kind of delve into the topic of storytelling and some of the stuff that you're working on, I would love to start off with an icebreaker type rapid fire of general questions. And these are pretty weird questions, I'm not gonna lie, but it's kind of a quick rapid fire that we can do if you're cool with that. So would you rather be a scorpion or a dolphin? Uh, I like the beach, so I'm gonna go with a uh, dolphin. All right, cool. Would you rather forget everyone you've ever met or have everyone you met forget you? Dang. Um... Yeah. Some of these are pretty deep. Actually, there's only one that's deep, but yeah. <laughs> oh, wow, that, that, that's, a, that's, that's a pretty, that's a tough one. Um, I, I would say um, I, would, I would have everyone forget me. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fool a lot of the time and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. And then the last one, would you rather read nothing but economics textbooks for the rest of your life or read only fan fiction for the rest of your life. Oh, geez. Um, you know, I, you know, there's some good stuff in economics textbooks. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I could, I could see myself reading those for the rest of my life. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, thank you for participating in that. Um, just to kick things off, I'd love to jump back to the beginning and dive into your story. Um, how has your college experience been like so far? And how are you enjoying your major field of interest? I think it's been great. Um, I initially didn't start uh, in computer science. I started as an economics major. Um, and, oh, hence the economics textbooks. Okay, yeah. I got that. Well, I'm a, I'm a former economics major, so maybe okay. it's a reverse <laughs> you know, justification. But um, yeah, like I, I did start in economics uh, and it was... Um, you know, like what I found most, you know, cool about economics was kind of the, the scientific slash engineering part with the data science. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll do some CS stuff. And then I found myself in that field. And from there, um, you know, a little, like the rest is history. I kind of, you know, saw myself like bumping around like various topics in CS literature that I really enjoyed. But, you know, one part that I 
didn't enjoy so much was like the way that it was taught. Um, you know, the common critique of CS classes that I hear from my peers is that like, uh, it's, it's too hard for them, or, you know, I, they just could not do it uh, for the life of them that, you know, political science is just inherently easier that like all these humanities majors that everyone like kind of transfers to after CS was just like, um, it's like intellectually, like not as difficult, which is why they're doing it. And I never really felt compelled by that explanation because there are a lot of people within computer science that probably um, couldn't do that transfer, probably couldn't do political science or probably uh, wouldn't be as successful in a humanities course. So one thing that I kind of was struggling with was, oh, so why, why is this the case? Why do we have um, this you know, predominant belief that these classes are quote unquote easier when personally speaking, I didn't really uh, sympathize with that. So I kind of thought really deeply about the way that political science classes, perhaps social science classes or humanities sciences, you know, humanities classes in general were taught, compared them to computer science classes. And then, you know, that's kind of the topic that I, um, you know, revolve around in the talk that I gave. Yeah. And what were some of those key differences that you noticed from the way both of those kind of subjects were taught? I think the one difference, most critical difference is, you know, by virtue of its name, like the humanities classes take the perspective of a human when they evaluate their lecture material. Uh, STEM classes seem to be under the you know, presumption that you can kind of detach the content at hand from the human that created it. Um, you know, you, you don't really consider when you studied Zeiser's algorithm that you're looking at a graph from the eyes of a human or a theory that was made by a human, like all the kind of social and historical and you know, political forces that you know, manifested itself into the theory that you now learn in your class. Um, that's almost never discussed. And you know, perhaps that was, is outside of the scope of the class, you know, as, as commonly mentioned, but I don't think it should be. Uh, and I think that's a reason why a lot of people are alienated from STEM education, that it's, it's too cold, it's, it's too algorithmic, and it's not their style. But to be honest, it's no one's style because it's deliberately designed for that purpose. It's, it's made so that it's, it's not through the lens of any particular human. So the, the feeling of alienation is, is, is cooked in. Um, meanwhile, you know, in humanities courses, you kind of had the recognition that you know, human history or you know, whatever you're observing is made through the lens of the observer. And I think you know, because of that, you're, you're forced to re-narrate a, re a lot of things through you know, primary sources, the, the recognition that things are in fact stories and not just um, you know, technological artifacts that we could just uh, um, you know, record and uh, observe from afar. And I, I think that's, that is an important perspective. And if we were to bring that into STEM education, we would uh, you know, see some pretty remarkable improvements in you know, student retention, class participation, and most importantly, uh, you know, the ability to really make STEM education accessible as you know, a social, um, I'd say, instrument. Um, and, uh, and, and making sure that more people are educated about the issues that you know, face our generation and give them the tools to um, you know, address some pressing social issues using uh, you know, STEM uh, you know, knowledge. So yeah, that's, that's my take on it. Uh, you know. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And I actually, I think I never really thought about it like that until this summer maybe. And I, I read this book, I'm kind of blanking on what it's called right now, but um, I'm reading it right now as well. It's this book on physics, except it's, I'm nowhere near like 
very interested in physics. I took AP physics in high school and I completely hated it. Um, maybe it's because I took it during the pandemic, but I always thought I was not a physics person at all. And then I read this book and this book tied physics in with philosophy. It tied it in with history because ultimately physics is a combination of some of those other ideas too. And it put it in a perspective that I never looked at before. It told me a story of Plato and I didn't know how Plato had anything to do with physics, but apparently he did. And so it, the history of how physics evolved or you know how people think and how different ideas sort of came to play and how different physics was from the way it was taught in the classroom to what physics is in theory and actuality. And so a subject that I thought I had hated, once I read about this in this almost prose-like structure, um, and I learned about how the subject evolved, my perspective on the subject changed completely. And I was like, maybe I can take a physics class in college. Maybe it's not something I should completely shy away from for the rest of my life. So that was really, really interesting. Exactly. You can kind of, the most important thing about um, studying a topic that motivates you is seeing yourself within it. It's like imagining yourself studying it and being an active participant in whatever material you're, you're talking about. And, you know, this can manifest in a lot of ways. Um, you know, a lot of people like to do this in terms of like a career plan. They're like, okay, well, I am going to be like the person that I want to be within the STEM field. And the way they manifest this is like, oh, I'm just going to make a lot of money in a career. But there are other ways to do it and probably more meaningful ways. And the ones that you mentioned, like, oh, like genuinely engaging with the content and being intellectually stimulated by it. Like that's that's another way you could, you know, imagine yourself, um, you know, being the person that you desire uh, within the within the field, because, you know, like we don't really uh, think about before taking a class like, oh, I'm going to take this class because the syllabus looks interesting, um, like the, the, the class curriculum. I wish I could just like put this stuff on a USB stick, pick a poke it in my head and just have the information. What you do is you imagine yourself in that class. You're like, OK, well, um, is the professor going to be nice to me? Like, you know, am I going to have friends? Like, I think that's really the perspective that's often understated. And you know, people don't really realize that you can't really disentangle um, your perspective of yourself being in that class as in, as kind of the motivating factor for you in that class. And you know, to your point about you know, jet, like physics, um, I, I, I think that's like a wonderful example because you know, um, the study of like, you know, uh, like the fundamental principles of the universe uh, often you know, intersects with things that also have to do with the fundamental principles of the universe, like philosophy and you know, even, even yeah. music and aesthetics. And I, and I think, yeah, like if we were to kind of uncover that kind of stuff, it, it would, uh, definitely, um, you know, uh, bring a lot of more people into the major, uh, you know, I think uh, one other book that I, I, I like to, you know, kind of piggyback on is like uh, Stefan Alexander's uh, Jazz and Physics, very fascinating book, um, basically describes how, you know, John Coltrane's uh, like key changes um, relate to like the theory of like, um, I don't know, like, uh, like black hole disruption or something like that. It, it was mm -hmm. fascinating the way that like, um, like, like the, the oscillations between key changes, like often like coincide with, uh, the way that we represent like quantum wave theory. And it, it's, it, it just kind of blew my mind, but, uh, it, it made me realize that like a lot of the stuff, um, you know, uh, is, is done like, you know, perhaps science is just like a representation of some of our like most deepest intuitions. And we have other channels of, um, tapping into that. So yeah, that's, 
you know yeah that's really cool and i think your comment on the registering for classes thing that really hit home because um me and pretty much my all my friends just last week we registered for our classes and Mm -hmm. a lot of things that we were looking for um for our classes for the most part were really utilitarian in nature um with this professor like there's this website that we have at our university and um you can see the average gpa of like students who are in a class with a professor and so what a lot of my friends did is we went onto that website and we looked at the professor for the class who's who had the highest gpa so like the highest median gpa and so everyone tried to find that professor because i would get a higher gpa in this class rather than you know we're looking at the style of teaching we didn't really look at, at much at the style of teaching or you know, comments on the way they were teaching. And what we're looking at is, was I gonna get a good GPA out of this class? Which is kind of interesting to look at the way our priorities are. And so um, I was wondering, how do you think storytelling can change the way people approach education and learning? There's a, as it relates to the the GPA thing, uh, (laughs) I think it's, uh, I mean, you know, I, 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 it's sometimes difficult to kind of uh, like do the classic critique of, you know, how dare you think education's a number game? Because, you know, it, as it is, it, it kind of is. And mm-hmm. uh, they're not really, to me, like any, any clear or concrete blueprints away from that. So I don't think, uh, you know, my, my talk or, you know, really my role was to kind of isolate like a step-by-step plan by which we um, distance ourselves from the kind of dominant academic rigor, like academic model that, uh, treats, uh, you know, the ideal student as the best, you know, future employee. Um, but um, personally, I think, uh, like, the, the power of storytelling is that whether we do it or not, we, we kind of are already doing it. Like, it's everything can be interpreted as a story in, in some capacity. It's just the only question is whether we do it intentionally and whether we, you know, write a good story or a bad one. Um, you know, like, when, whenever we go into a STEM class and we like start listening to, to the you know, professor talk and you know, like uh, hear the, the STEM content at hand, to a certain extent, like we are like kind of acting, we are kind of like performing a kind of story. It's like, okay, well, you know, here is like the career progression path that um, I'll experience after this lecture. And even us imagining that is kind of one form of a story. But the only thing about that story is that's it's very unimpressive. It's not really a test of character. You just, you know, like walk along the wheels of whatever path was already paved for you and just kind of unintentionally, um, you know, reach the objectives that uh, other people have set. You're, you're essentially executing the dreams of others. And, you know, personally, I wouldn't really want to read that story. Like, that's not very fun. And why would I want to make that story my life? I mean, that's the, the thing. I think, you know, people should really, you know, take more power into realizing that, um, you know, their, their life is a story and you have to write a good one, uh, one that's interesting and one you could tell other people. So, you know, not so much just education, but just life in general. I think, um, you know, people definitely should uh, try to critically analyze that. And if you were to critically analyze that, you'd kind of real, realize that a lot of your life choices would be different. Um, and yeah. I'm not, I'm not here to like offer any like particular suggestions on how people should live their lives. But if anyone feels like they're like inauthentic to the, you know, real personality or character objectives that they want, then perhaps writing a story would be a little bit of a remedy to that. 
That's a really interesting approach to look at. I, I like that. Um, I, I feel like sometimes we view education in such a utilitarian way that we forget to enjoy, you know, the intellectual invigoration that comes from it, which is also another interesting point. Yeah, I mean, um, mm -hmm. one thing that I'd like to say to that also is like, um, often the critical bottleneck to accomplishing a lot of the stuff that you want in life, you know, for example, through the utilitarian lens that you described is, um, is the motivation slash desire to do something. And it's really hard to have motivation um, if you don't really see where everything is going. Like uh, the reason why startup founders, I think, have a little bit more of a willingness to like work 10 to 12 hour days and just continue doing is um, because they see like the work from like a top-down architecture. They're like, okay, this little bit of work I'm doing today fits within like this brand project that I'm about to do. And, and a lot of people don't really have that perspective. And, um, you know, I think one really underweighted qualification that uh, people kind of neglect when um, deciding their career, uh, and, I, and I'll almost hear this, like, I, I never kind of hear this uh, as stated as a qualification, but like the greatest qualification that, or slash bottleneck that prevents people from choosing a particular career is like the desire to do the job. Like if, if you don't like doing the job, you will not be a good job, like a candidate for the job. And, you know, it seems like right. that, that preference uh, which perhaps could have one of the biggest impacts and whether you're able to, um, you know, accomplish uh, a particular career path successfully is uh, grossly underrepresented. So that's uh, my take slash tidbit on um, kind of the utilitarian justification for abandoning um, some kind of story-based perspective on charting your academic path. Right, that's interesting. And in regarding that story-based perspective, on the academic side, what would what is something that maybe you'd like to see in your STEM classes and your CS classes in a way that storytelling is more integrated into the curriculum? Man, I, I would try, well, a couple of things. So there's this fantastic book, uh, you know, it won the Pulitzer Prize and I think in the late 1980s and it's written by Douglas Hostreiter. Uh, it's called uh, Godel Escher Bach, fantastic book. And I think it's like, one of the you know pinnacle examples of how we should try to teach STEM education. It starts with like uh, each chapter starts with a, a little bit of a you know like playful anecdote. I wouldn't say anecdote, but like a, a story slash parable between like Achilles and a horse and a tortoise, and like kind of describes the, the the theoretical concept it's about to teach within a like parable format, like almost like you know uh, you know Jesus in, in the Bible, like you know something <laughs> like that. Uh, or, you know, Homer and, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, like in the Odyssey, like it's a, you're trying to teach a particular concept, but very indirectly using like the use of metaphor and syllogism and kind of placing that within the context of a story. And, uh, you know, he's like, he starts with that and then like begins to explain where like historically speaking, the concept came from. And then finally, like introduces a couple of like puzzles that uh, the, user, the reader can solve uh, using the concepts that he introduced both through the, the parable and history. And, and I think, um, you know, something along those lines would really benefit uh, STEM education. Uh, instead of like starting a lecture with, here's the bullet point content that's gonna be on the next midterm, please memorize it. I think something that would be way more engaging is, 
you know, you talked about, you know, for example, right, um, how many people had a struggle uh, for hours on end to build like the current generation of Intel processors? Like what kind of arguments did they have? Like, you know, this guy like wanted to make the system like this, but it, it, like he could not get it done because of like the, you know, political slash social ramifications, which is why we didn't see the system until 30 years later. Um, and like describe that process, like describe that chain of thought, like imagine you're that person developing the system for the first time. Why exactly did you make the system this way? And I think that's way more of a useful perspective because when you're, um, you know, placed into the position of a thinker rather than like, you know, like a sponge-like absorber of content, I think you, you're forced to be more critical about things and that would solve a lot of the apathy problem that we're currently experiencing um, as STEM students. Right, and I think it also adds this level of critical thinking too. Like in a real life situation, in a, a situation where you have to create something or build something, you know, what's the train of what's the train of thought there? What's the process? How has this happened in the past, and how does that influence the way you would approach a problem like that? Hmm. So I definitely think it it can encourage students to also think more critically. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's that's an important aspect of you know you have to like kind of create the architecture of a story from within your own head. You have like different interpretations of the story. Like there are all these things that, you know, we're forced to consider once you realize that something's written from a particular perspective um, that I don't think, uh, you know, goes um, you know, noticed as often. Yeah, and we, we talked a lot about um, advocacy or so storytelling for education. And I'd love to maybe talk about storytelling for advocacy. So how can fighting for awareness of issues like the need for developing socially responsible technologies be enhanced through storytelling? And um, like, I always like uh, something that I've like realized like me and, me and my, uh, like I'm working on a, a bit of an app right now, you know, try to pitch it to people. And like, there's always two ways to explain, you know, what I'm doing. Like first is you explain how you're doing it and then why you're doing it. And the second is you explain why you're doing it then how you're doing it. Um, you know, like me and my friend Adam, we're, we're working on like this, this, this relationship app and, you know, like we can say, okay, we're working on this relationship app. It provides a platform for love letters. Um, the reason why we're doing it is because, uh, you know, we, we see, uh, some, you know, we see a lot of missed connections on campus or whatever. That's like the first way to explain it. The second way to explain it is, do you remember the time that you saw someone cute at Starbucks, but couldn't reach out to them? Right. Well, we got a solution to that now. I mean, these are just, those, that's just night and day. Like that, that's exactly, yeah. I think the way that, you know, like good storytelling would not give up the, the conclusion at the very beginning, but you know, it seems like that's the desired behavior in, uh, in technical, technical work. And I think advocacy should kind of play the similar tune. Like, uh, you know, you explain like why you're doing something in like, you know, crisp detail that like activates the plot. And then from there, like you, you kind of channel it into the, the final solution. Politicians are very good at this. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, but the one thing politicians, you know, are not so tech, like are not so apt at is like understanding the technical details of all the systems. So I think maybe, uh, you know, kind of integrating that technical proficiency with the storytelling would make for a more kind of informed advocate and thus more informed advocacy. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point. Um, in relation to your app, how have you noticed the 
I guess, the response to your pitches when you have explained it in different ways, like one in the more like technical way where you're introducing the reasoning behind your app very clearly, very directly versus when you're kind of creating that story around it. What's the difference in how those two are receptive? It's interesting. Um, if I talked about just the technical details, they will start asking technical questions. If I talk about the reason why we made the app and then explaining how we did it, they will begin to start like thinking of themselves, like the questions from the perspective of themselves using the app. And I think the latter is just so much more useful and, and not just useful, I think it's more meaningful because it makes the conversation a little bit more grounded. Um, you know, we will no longer, like if, if, I, if, I, if I explain it in you know, the, the story-based fashion, um, I, I no longer, like I, I stop getting questions like, um, oh, like, you know, is your backend server configured through Node.js or Python? Or, um, you know, like, you know, what was your uh, development timeline? Or, um, you know, how much funding have you received? I start getting questions like, oh, like, you know, I had this kind of misconnection on campus. Like, it was really hard for me to reach out to this person. Um, like, how exactly do you see your app solving that? Or, you know, I start fielding some, like, more social questions. Like, oh, like, you know, if, if people really, you know, believe in romance at first glance, like, is, 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 is that something that we should actively facilitate through an app? Is that something that's desirable? Like, I get like a more interesting set of questions that seem, you know, to, to attract it from a different perspective, not just, uh, you know, placing me as a lecturer of some informative content, but someone who's like, you know, a friend, a participant in a conversation, having some meaningful dialogue with, you know, a potential user or just, you know, someone who's interested in the app. So, I think, yeah, it's it's not um, not just for lectures. I think it's it's cross compatible with a lot of different contexts, including you know even startups, yeah. even advocacy. Yeah, it's very interesting. And maybe to apply some of the tips of storytelling that I've learned from you today, um, maybe I'd like to ask a little bit about your app that you're developing and how the idea for it came about, the story behind it, if you will. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, so me and my co-founder Adam, uh, we, uh, you know, like we we found ourselves like uh, in, in a lot of moments of hesitation. Like, you know, we'd, we'd go to a Starbucks, you like see someone that you like, and you're like, man, that that person, I, I really want to talk to them. Um, you know, like they like they talk to the barista, they're like or figuring out the order, and so you like you start like rehearsing the conversation in your head. You're like, okay, I'll say this, they'll say this, and then I'll say this, and then like it'll be great. And then like, you know, like, wait, no, 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 no. That's like, that's dumb. We shouldn't do that. And then, and then, and like, and then finally you have like the perfect conversation thread that like is mapped out, like, you know, almost, uh, you know, like a script from God in your mind. And then you like, you muster the courage to talk to them. And before you know it, they've already left the store. And so um, it's like, it's a bit of a catch 22. Like you seem like you always have to like wait and like think to like have the right words to say, but you never quite, um, you know, have them in time. And I think, uh, you know, our app, it, you know, it's, it's called Mist. It, it's like, you know, on the app store now, but uh, it essentially tries to combat that by allowing you to write like anonymous love letters uh, and like geolocate them and, you know, place them by time and, um, you know, send them out to, you know, the person that, you know, you really missed out on your, your missed connection, so to speak. And that's, uh, that's, that's essentially the idea. It's like targeted to college campuses and you know that's kind of how we're trying to you know work around those moments of hesitancy and give people a second chance. That's awesome. That sounds like a really cool idea. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
kind of related to that, um, why do you think it's so important in today's day and age to have human-centered and socially responsible technologies out there? That's a, that's a good question. Um, it's, it, I think, you know, socially responsible is probably uh, definitely, you know, the, the preferred term um, that, that, that I'd use because mm-hmm. it's like, um, you know, it's, I think like, it's, it's funny because like, we're kind of at like a breakneck speed in terms of technological innovation, but we don't really like, it's, it's interesting because we, we always, when you write like economics reports about like the, the benefits of technology, we always describe them in terms of the GDP, like some like the numerical quality of life indicators. But I, I don't think we really have a consideration of like, you know, the trajectory of innovation and like what problems it's attempting to solve. And I think, uh, yeah, it's 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 a it's a consideration that does um, you know need to be forefronted by like you know us like you know probably one of the most technically proficient generations of all of human history um, yet seems most lost and aimless when it comes to these greater questions about which problems that we should solve um, and yeah I think I think that is very important um, one thing I, I would like to say though is. Uh, I don't really think it's like an enclosed category. Like, you know, the fight for socially responsible technology is also like, you know, like interweaved with like a lot of kind of the emerging social cultural, like, um, like, you know, protests, activism movements that we've seen over the past three decades. Like, you know, I think a lot of people erroneously assume that like we have the objective morals down or the social norms down. And all we need to do is just twist tech a little bit to like move it. I mean, technology is also a social slash cultural artifact. And, you know, we have to kind of recognize that it's, it's embedded with the cult- set of cultural assumptions. And, you know, the, the fight to m- move technology in a certain direction is also changing like the societal culture. And I don't think we should really give up on that front or lose that, you know, interpretive lens when we're crafting socially responsible technology. We're, we're crafting a vision of what is socially responsible and representing that through technology. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point too, especially with the changes in public perception of existing technologies, like social media, for instance, there are people who objectively hate it and there are people who objectively love it. And there are, I guess, some people on a spectrum in between as well. But there are more people I feel like now that are looking at different components of these platforms and are kind of critically analyzing the effect that this has on them and kind of questioning components of it. Like, is it extremely healthy to have an infinite scroll? Is that benefiting me somehow? Or, um, you know, how do you know that this is the ad that I need to see? Like, what are you, sur- what are you surveillancing here in terms of what I'm looking at? Um, is that ethical? Are you take- is, am I okay with using my data for this? And so there's a lot more questions that I feel like people in general are bringing up. And there's more things that we care about today and that we're more critical of. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, it's like, as it relates to that, uh, you know, personally speaking, like, while me and my, my friend Adam are, are making an app, like, it's, it's interesting, like, the kinds of, like, design decisions that you have to think about. It's like, oh, are we going to put an infinite scroll? Like, are we going to put a swipe feature? Like, how are we going to represent this? And I, and it's, it's funny, because, like, now that we have, like, a top-down view of everything, like, we're like, okay, well, we actually do have the creative control to change things and kind of see the intention behind it. And I think, you know, ultimately, like, you know, intentionality is, 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 is the first step, like realizing that 
these systems are, are not inevitable. Like I, I think the, the common, the, the most common defense, and I think like the most, like perhaps the most unjustifiable one of, you know, not creating socially responsible technology is that there people are like students are just too powerless. Like, okay, well, how, like, how would you ever think about changing the system? Just like get a job at Microsoft and just like put those dreams in the trash and just, uh, you know, live out your life in a, in a condo um, with your, you know, like four person family. I mean, I think, you know, we, we have a lot more power than uh, we come to realize, like, you know, Apple and IBM were created from like the garages of like, uh, you know, people uh, of, of like-minded computer science students like us. And, you know, the technology giants that we see today that have come to like dominate our lives or, you know, um, just, just play an ever-present role were uh, invented by, you know, young, naive and uh, ambitious young adults. And, you know, given that, you know, the, the nature of that, you know, kind of social inertia and how that played out, I think we also have the power to change it. So, you know, that's kind of what I'd say on, on that topic conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Kevin. I think that was the perfect conclusion to our discussion today. Thank you so much for chatting with me. I really appreciated it. Thank you, Shivani. Um, you know, appreciate that you had me on. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to have you know, shared a good conversation about some of the issues that we have in STEM education. Yeah, of course. And thank you to all our viewers. I will see you guys next week. <laughs>